Well, good morning, church family. How are you? Good. It's good to be with you today as we continue in our series called Seven on the book of Revelation. And if you've missed, or just to give us all a reminder and a recap of what we've gone through so far, we're in the fourth week of our series. Week one, we saw a picture of the risen Jesus Christ standing solidly amidst his churches. Week two, we saw the vision of these seven letters given to the churches with instruction from our Lord. And week three, we saw the seven seals unsealed, seals of judgment, but that came with a specific word about the security of the church everlasting in those last days. And today we look at another sevenfold vision, a vision that John is given in this book on the trumpets. And today, as we look at the seven trumpets, we ask what they are uniquely saying to us as God's church, what they're telling us about who our God is, and what they tell us about God's plan for those apart from him in this world. So would you pray with me as we begin? Father God, we open a vision today that you gave to your servant, John. And we know that vision was not meant to be kept just for John, but to the original hearers in the ancient times, and it's for us today too, and for the church's hope going forward into the future. So my prayer this morning is that your word would say what it is intended to teach us. Give us your truth. Give us clarity, God. And on those places where we need to just trust in the mystery of who you are, give us faith to do so. We ask for your spirit and your guidance in this place, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So this morning we're going to start our reading in Revelation 8. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, or maybe you're following along in the study Bibles that we offer back there in the book of Revelation. But we're going to start in Revelation chapters 8. We'll be looking at chapters 8 through 11. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of those together today. Um, you can find it on page 1917 of the Bibles in your pews, too. But as you turn there, I want to offer you some words of comfort about this series. It's really easy to look at the book of Revelation and to be overwhelmed. But there is a message that God has for his people in there. A message he wants us to understand clearly. And it's really easy to look at these words, especially what we're looking at today. There's a lot of frightening imagery in the trumpets that we're going to be talking about. It's really easy for God's church to look and to be fearful. I've had lots of conversations with believers about their fear over these words. But I want to encourage you, as one commentator puts it, the book of Revelation actually comforts God's suffering saints and warns hardened unbelievers. This is not a book for God's people to fear. This book actually offers words of hope and good news and comfort to God's family and offers merciful warnings to the unbelieving world. So keep that in mind as we go through today's seven trumpets. So brothers and sisters, we open in chapter eight, verse two. Hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. 
Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I hope you notice today that there are a lot of parallels between what we're reading here and what we talked about last week in the seven trumpets, or in the seven seals, I'm sorry. And you'll also see parallels to what we're going to talk about in the seven bowls coming up. The word of God is drawing our attention over and over again to what is going to happen. It's securing it. It's saying it's sure. This is indeed going to unfold. So let your mind make those connections this morning with those parallels. But one of those things that we see is just like in the opening of the seven seals, it begins with the prayers of God's people. There it was the prayers of the martyrs going up before God. How long, O Lord, avenge us, O Lord. And they were told to wait for a time. But here today, we see the angel, angel has this, this censer, a bowl, full of the prayers of God's people. And he offers it up to God. And then the angel fills that bowl, that same bowl, with coals and throws it onto the earth. So when we look at the seven trumpets today, what we're hearing, what these introduction verses are telling us is these trumpets are actually, in many ways, God's answer to his people's prayers. That's a beautiful thing. We could do a whole sermon right here on the beauty of prayer and how God hears his people's prayers. But just let that sink in today. These seven trumpets are an answer to the cries that God, yes, hears his people. He hears their prayers and he responds. And so the seven trumpets begin to blow. Now, what do we know about trumpets from the greater context of scripture? We know a lot of things about trumpets. We know that trumpets were used for signaling in the midst of war. Think of Jericho, right? God's people march around Jericho. They blow the trumpets and what happens? The walls come tumbling down, right? We could, we could sing a great song this morning. It's a sign of war. It's a sign that judgment is coming. We know that trumpets biblically were used to gather people. And in fact, in Matthew 24, Jesus points to this when he says, when the end times come, the trumpet will sound and my people will be gathered from the ends of the earth. And we know trumpets were an alarm. An alarm that something big is happening. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that when Christ returns, the trumpet will sound. The alarm will be sound. The dead in Christ will be raised. Something big is happening. And trumpets were also used to announce the enthronement of royalty. So the fact that they're talking about trumpets today should prepare us mentally. We have an idea of what's coming because of what scripture has already used trumpets for. And indeed, we will see all of those faithful representations of the trumpets in today's word. So the trumpets begin to blow, and here, I hope you can see it, we have a chart of all the trumpets. My hope is this is more helpful than confusing to you, but if it's confusing, just listen. The trumpets begin to blow, and they, they kind of are blown in three different sections. First, we have the first four trumpets, and then trumpets five and six, and then the final trumpet. So let's take a look at the first four trumpets first. What we see 
The first trumpet blows and we see hail mixed with fire and blood falling to the earth. This wipes out a third of the trees and all of the grass. Then the second trumpet blows and we see this fiery mountain falling into the sea. It takes out a third of the water of the sea and the sea creatures living in it because it turns it into blood. And it takes out a third of the ships as well. Then the third trumpet sounds and similarly it affects the water. We see this image of a blazing star falling into the fresh waters and it poisons them. It calls it wormwood. But it, it poisons them in such a way that many people die. So a third of the fresh waters on the earth are destroyed. And finally, the fourth trumpet is blown. And a third of the sun, the moon, and the stars are turned to darkness. The first four trumpets have devastated the natural resources of the earth. Are you recalling anything similar in your mind as you hear these first four trumpet effects? We may be in Revelation, but think back earlier, much, much earlier in scripture. What are these sounding like? Do you hear Egypt in your minds? Do you see the parallels between these trumpets and the 10 plagues of Egypt? that God used as judgment on the Egyptian people. Yes, we do. If you take a lineup of the trumpets and you take a lineup of the 10 plagues, and even if you take a look at the seven bowls, you will see so many parallels to the judgments that God gave in Egypt. Even the beginning of Exodus, before the plagues come, begins with God heard the cries and the prayers of his people. And he responded. In Revelation, God hears the cries and the prayers of his people, and he responds. But what do these trumpets mean? What does God going after the resources of the earth tell us? Well, first of all, if you lose all of your grass, like you do in the first trumpet, and you lose your trees, what are you losing? You're losing your crops, you're losing your livelihood of all of your cattle and your livestock, right? If there's no grass to eat, there's no plants left, goodbye livestock. This was a people that relied on the land. If you lose a third of, of the water in the seas, you're losing these people ate a lot of fish, more fish than meat, right? You're losing a lot of fish, so again, it's deeply affecting the food chain supply. You're losing a third of your ships. People relied on trade. This was a huge, huge loss for them. You lose a third of your fresh water. Wow. Especially think about, think about where the ancient hearers were. They weren't exactly in a land that was already abounding with fresh water in the first place. They lose a third of their fresh water. And lastly, they lose the light, right? A third of their light. Think about how much you rely on light for on a day-to-day -day basis. What God has done, essentially, is what he did in Egypt. He took away the people's self-sufficiency. The things the people relied on for, the things they said, we can do this for ourselves. We can get food, we can get water, we can do trade. We've got this. God strips them away of their self-sufficiency. In Egypt, 
All these plagues were associated with different gods. The Lord, our God, was literally attacking these false gods. And, and we see similarities in the Greek and, and the um, Roman gods of the day. They're correlated to these plagues and to these judgments as well. God is literally stripping the people away of, of their self-sufficiency, their, their self-idolatry, right? I am God for myself. He's taking away their self-sufficiency and he's attacking the mythological gods of the day. Just like he did in Egypt. He's bringing mankind to their knees. We're a self-reliant people, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Those of you who are uh, not saying yes, maybe you're part of the problem. Um, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But we are a self-reliant people. Even as Christians, we forget how much we need our God, don't we? This is God's way of bringing the world to its knees. This is a judgment. Make no mistake. All four of these are judgments on the unrepentant people of the earth. But it is a way for our God to say, world, here I am. You need me. And it's easy as Christians, again, to look at these plagues and to be fearful. To look at these trumpets sounding and to think, oh, I do not want to be around when that happens. But brothers and sisters, the good news for the people of God in these first four trumpets is that our reliance, our hope, it's not on our self-sufficiency. It's not on the abundance of our table, right? Our reliance and our hope was never on these things. It is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And our God promises he will provide for us. Our God promises he will care for us. And our God promises he will be with us. And so while the world will be brought to its knees, the world will quake and the world will stand in awe and fear when these four trumpets sound. Make no mistake, God's people can stand firm. That's the good news for us because we have our own provider and it has been Christ from the beginning. So we need not fear these first four trumpets. So the first four trumpets have sounded. The earth has been totally devastated. And we come up to this weird image of a bird flying in the air. Turn with me, if you will, to chapter 8, verse 13. After the first four trumpets sound, we get this image. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the other three angels are about to blow. In scripture, when a word is repeated twice, what does that tell us? tells us it's important. It tells us to listen and to pay attention. But the eagle doesn't say this word once. He doesn't say it twice. He says, whoa, three times. Have you ever heard anyone use the word whoa? Like, oh, whoa is me. That's not really a common thing we word. It's a pretty extreme word. So this should tell us, this vision that John is receiving is basically the Lord saying, buckle up. You thought the first four trumpets were bad? Nothing compared to what is coming, people of the world. So we know that the judgment that is coming is about to be intense. So the fifth trumpet sounds, and the first of the three woes, the fifth trumpet, unfolds. We are given 
I think, one of the most horrifying images in Scripture of this army of locusts that comes straight up from the pit of hell itself and is led by de demonic beings. These are demonic beings with, led by demonic powers, and they are given power to ravage the non-believers of the world. Has anybody ever read this part of scripture and been like, what is going on right now? Anybody? Okay, yeah, yeah. We could spend all day talking about the locusts. I would love to talk more about this. Catch me sometime. But what I want us to hear in this is that this is a force to be reckoned with. This is the power, literally the word of the, of the demonic force leading this army is destroyer. This is a force to be reckoned with. Everything we know about the wording that is used to describe this, everything we know about ancient culture tells us that what this tied into the people's culture of the day would have sent them packing. They would have been running for the hills in fear of this imagery, of this wording that John uses to describe this. He's, he's bringing up images of mythological creatures that are fearful. He's bringing up images of, of nearby enemies that the people are terrified of. So whatever this demonic horde is, we know that it cuts to the people deeply and they are afraid. They are afraid and it would have incited intense horror in the hearers of ancient times. Yet here again, we see that God is in control. And his people, us, the church, have no reason to fear. First of all, God puts boundaries on the power that is given. They cannot touch who? Amen. They cannot touch believers, right? These, this demonic horde has no power over the people of God. They cannot touch the people of God. This is only for the unrepentant people of the world. And these demonic powers cannot kill. God allows intense suffering, but they cannot kill. And it says, I want to look at this verse together. It says in, in chapter 9, verse 1, read that first verse with me. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fall from heaven, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He's given the key to hell. Who did we learn in chapter 1 has the key to death in Hades? Jesus! Jesus Christ! He's in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, I hold the key to death and Hades. Brothers and sisters, if you think this is just Satan running loose with all the power in the world happening on the earth, think again. They only have the power that the keeper of the keys gives them for a short time, and it is a power that is bound only to the world for five months, and they cannot kill. What we see here as God's people is, A, this trumpet does not affect us, but B, God is still on the throne. God is still in control. He is allowing these powers to fulfill his judgment purposes, right? right? But he is still in control. So again, we need not fear, brothers and sisters, the church of Jesus Christ, because our God is in control. But for those who do not know the Lord, fear is the exact response that this demonic horde should incite. The powers of Satan, the powers 
that are demonic spiritual forces in this world should terrify those who are not covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, the suffering, the pain. Scripture says they're going to wish for death, but death will not come. We see our friends who are unbelievers suffering in this world already, don't we? Can you imagine a horde like this unleashed in this world and the kind of pain that it would cause? No wonder scripture calls this the first woe. Demonic forces attacking unbelievers is nothing to be trite about. Then we get to the sixth trumpet. And the sixth trumpet sounds and the second woe is unleashed. And the language that's used is it's unleashed on the inhabitants of the earth. Oftentimes when scripture is using this language, it's talking not about God's people, but about the unrepentant people on the earth. So we know this trumpet unleashes something, at least on the unrepentant people of the earth. And it's another demonic force. And it's an army. And it gives a specific number of how many are in this cavalry, this this army on horseback. But really what the number is trying to tell us is, is that it's an innumerable, unstoppable army. The world cannot stop it. And these horses, in their mouths, they have the power to deliver three things. To deliver sulfur and fire and smoke. And as they go about, they're unleashed from the Euphrates, right? There's a lot, again, there's a lot culturally and biblically behind that. And we can talk more about that anytime. I'm happy to talk with you about that. But what it says, it says these angels, the four angels were bound at the Euphrates. Anytime an angel is bound, we know that's not an angel of the Lord. That's a fallen angel. God's angels are not bound. So these fallen angels are released. And the fact that it's identifying them as four and where they're located at the edge, at the border of God's people's land, indicates for us that they are going all over the world. The four points of this compass. Again, this is inciting fear. The people that heard this in the day would have understand how horrible this is. And unlike the fifth woe, These demonic creatures have the power to kill. And it tells us they're going to wipe out one-third of mankind. Are we sobered yet? On behalf of the world, for these six trumpets that are going to sound. It should sober us as God's people, even though we have the assurance that our Lord is on the throne, right? Right? It should sober us because we know what is to come. And specifically, we know what is to come for the world. And I want to stop for a moment. In the wake of these horrifying judgments. And ask a question. What do the six trumpets tell us about the character of God? First of all, it tells us he's just. How many of us have wished for justice in one way or another in our lives? How many of us have looked around at this broken, evil, sinful world, said, God, do something. Bring justice. Don't you see what's going on? And that's the picture we get of God's people praying in the beginning. That's the picture we get of God's people praying before the seals are open. That's the picture we get of God's people praying under their oppression in Egypt. God, do something. Where is your strong arm? Where is your justice? And these seven trumpets are an answer to that prayer. In these seven trumpets, we see the righteous judgment 
of God upon the world. But if we look deeper, we see something else that reveals the character of God. If we look at these trumpets deeper, what we actually see is that not only is our God just, but our God is merciful. Merciful. No, I'm not on drugs. I have read these passages with you. And though there doesn't seem to be a lot of mercy involved in the trumpets we are reading about today, it is there, brothers and sisters. God, with a single thought, without a word, we know he could wipe out his enemies. Could he not? Can our God not do that? So why seven alarms? Why seven trumpets? Why seven warning sounds? Because our God does not wish that anyone should perish. John 3.16. Say it with me if you know it. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John 3, 17. Let's memorize that too. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Our God desires for people to be saved. So while our God could in an instant, in a thought, without a word, wipe out his enemies and said, he sends seven judgments, but seven judgments and seven warning sounds. How many of you hit snooze on your alarm in the morning? I'm getting better now that I have a baby that wakes up at 5 a.m., but it's still tough, right? God is sending the alarm, and the world keeps hitting snooze, and the world keeps hitting snooze, and the world keeps hitting snooze. But what we see in these six trumpets is God's mercy, giving more and more opportunity for people to, to fall to their knees in awe of what they've seen our God do and to receive grace and mercy and salvation in him while the time is still present. And we see this picture of mercy. If you look at the greater context of scripture, often what is left over is not, not two thirds, right? In these trumpets, we continue to hear a third of this was wiped out, a third of mankind, a third of the seas. So often in scripture, when it's talking about a people that are taken into captivity, only a tenth is left. This is the revealing the merciful heart of God. He's leaving the majority to be able to turn and repent. So this morning, brothers and sisters, I hope that you don't just hear the justice and the judgment of our God, which is good and is an answer to prayer, but that you hear the merciful, loving heart of our Savior that the world needs to hear too. So, six trumpets have blown. Judgment has been delivered and mercy is being called for. And then we have this weird break. Before the seventh trumpet sounds, we have this weird break where we kind of get these three visions. And I'm going to try my best to walk us through these three visions in a way that makes sense and doesn't take 45 minutes. So buckle up. The first vision that we get in the break is the vision of the angel and the scroll. These, these judgments have been sounded. 
Then we see this angel, and he's standing with one foot on the earth and one foot on the sea. And what we need to know about that is that culturally that signified that God was conqueror over both land and sea. God, again, Scripture is telling us God is in control. There is not a place on this earth, on land or in sea, that God is not victor, conqueror, and in control of. So God's people are being reassured once again. And in the hand of that angel is a scroll. And as John is seeing this vision, a heavenly voice tells him to take the scroll and to eat it. And John does. And as he takes it and as he eats the scroll, it's sweet honey in his mouth. Why is that? Because it's God's word. And God's word is always sweet to his people. We see that in the Psalms over and over again. It talks about the goodness and the sweetness of God's word. When Elijah in the Old Testament is given a scroll to eat, he says in his mouth, it was sweet like honey. God's word is good for his people. But then when he digests it, in his stomach it becomes bitter. Same thing happened with the prophet Elijah. It becomes this bitter thing in his belly. The reason for this is because while God's word is good and it's sweet, it tells us that, the angel tells him, the time is almost near. Christ is almost coming back. We're not going to delay anymore. God's people are going to be blessed. You're going to receive your rewards. But before that happens, the message that you're going to take out to the world, the truth of the gospel, you're going to be persecuted for that message. And people are going to hate you and reject you because of that message. So there is a sweetness to what's happening. But there is also a bitter reality to what that word going out is going to do to the world. Leading to ultimate judgment for those who don't receive it and repent. And to the church. They're going to be persecuted for that message. And we see that reality unfold in this, and the vision of the two witnesses that comes up. But in God's mercy, he gives us this, this other vision of a temple. It's, don't miss this. It's very short. Actually, we're going to read it really quickly. In, in chapter 11, will you turn with me? Chapter 11, after we've seen the vision of the angel and the scroll... God says this in verse 1. John says, I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. John is measuring this temple, and while that may seem like out in left field to us, wait, 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 we were just talking about the church, how the church is going to be persecuted for sharing the word of God. Why are we talking about this vision of the temple? There's a lot of people that think this is talking about a literal temple. But what happened when Jesus died? The curtain of the temple was torn in two. The sacrifices that were made in the temple were no longer necessary. The church of Jesus Christ became the living temple. Listen to what Ephesians says about the temple. Ephesians 2 verse 19 says this, 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises, church, this is you, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, in Christ, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So see this vision of the temple as a representation of the spiritual, physical temple. We are the temple, right? We are the spiritual temple. God's spirit dwells in us now. And we, the church, are being built with Christ as the cornerstone into this ultimate temple that will one day be complete. And so when we see this vision of the temple here, think of the church of Jesus Christ. And the fact that John is given a measuring rod to measure the temple. This sounds so bizarre, right? But what the language and what the ancient hearers would have understood is that in measuring this building, it meant security. Security. The temple is secure. So while this seems out in left field coming in these visions after we've been told we're going to be persecuted and these two witnesses bear witness to Jesus Christ, what God is really doing is saying, hang on church, I need you to know. You're about to hear about persecution you're going to go through. But I need you to know you are eternally secure as my church. I've got you. The temple that I am the cornerstone of, the temple I have been building from before the foundations of the earth, you are safe. And nothing can snatch you out of my hand. That's good news, isn't it? So between these two visions of persecution, we are reminded, rest assured, church, you are safe. So we see this vision of the temple, and that opens into a vision of two witnesses. And they're in this city. And it's thought that the city represents the world. And there are these two witnesses that go out into the city, and they testify to the truth of God. And these two witnesses, in the midst of giving their testimony, are killed. Their bodies are laid on the street. They're not even buried, which is an ultimate sign of disrespect. And the people of the world, the people of the city that represents the world, are so happy that these witnesses, that the truth of Jesus Christ has been killed, has been silenced. They've been bearing in on their consciences for days and, and, and days. They're so happy they're dead. They're actually declaring a holiday and giving each other gifts. Do you see the evil that will be in the world. But what happens to the two witnesses? Do they stay dead? No. <laughs> no is the answer. After three and a half days, these witnesses are filled with the Spirit of God himself. And they are raised in front of the eyes of the evil in the world. And a voice tells them to come up. And they are resurrected just like our Jesus was. These witnesses represent the church of Jesus Christ. There's two of them in the law in Deuteronomy. You might say two. Why do two people represent the church of Jesus Christ? In Deuteronomy, it says the testimony, testimony of two witnesses is faithful and true. Jesus repeats this in the New Testament and reminds us the testimony of two witnesses is faithful and true. They're represented by two lampstands. What in, in, earlier in Revelation do we know that the lampstands represent? The church of God. 
There's so much beautiful imagery here, but it's pointing us to the fact that, that these witnesses represent the church of Jesus Christ. They remind us of Moses and Elijah too, if, if you know your scripture and you read through it. I challenge you to find all the similarities in these two witnesses between Moses and Elijah. But Moses and Elijah were men who witnessed to the good news, who witnessed to the truth of God in a world under judgment. And they were persecuted for it. There are similarities here, but this is pointing us to the church of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake, the church will enter a time of persecution. We already see this happening around the world. We know and we need to be ready for that. We need to be people who are eating the word and not just eating it by di digesting it, living on the very words of God. We need to be people who are committed to the faith, not just wishy-washy, right? Because we know persecution will come. But think of that vision of the temple. Think of that vision of resurrection of the two witnesses. We know that in the end, the church is eternally secure in the hand of God. What awaits the people of God, the good news of Revelation, is that Jesus Christ is victorious and his church is as well. Amen? Amen. 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 So we see this vision, the assurance that we have a testimony to give, and that while we will be persecuted, we will be raised to ultimate victory. And then we come to the last trumpet. And the last trumpet is the last woe. And this seems backwards. Because if you've been tracking and reading, you know that the last trumpet is the celebration of the arrival of Jesus Christ. Right in the beginning, we talked about trumpets signify enthronement of royalty. This last trumpet is the trumpet sound that signifies the coming, the return, the parousal of our Lord Jesus Christ that we have longed for. This is good news, is it not? Yes. But this is called the third woe. The day of the Lord is called the great and terrible day of the Lord. Because it is only good news that Christ returns for his church. The rest of the world, this is the ultimate woe. Because as we talked about, our God is merciful. But the blasting of the seventh trumpet signifies the end of God's mercy. Not God's mercy to the church. That, that is a promise that continues forever. But the blast of the seventh trumpet, the return of Christ, says that there is no more time to receive mercy. For those who have not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ, those at the end of chapter 6, it tells us, are still, despite seeing all these signs, are still unrepentant, are still serving false gods, are still into sexual immorality, witchcraft, and idolatry. For them, there is no more hope. This is the ultimate woe. This is the seal of their damnation. And that should sober us as the church. This day we long for, as we should. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We should be praying for Christ's return. It's also the most sobering day in history. Because it is the day when those we know, those in this world who don't know Jesus, will meet the end of God's mercy. Because no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. That's why it's the ultimate woe. God's mercy eventually will end. 
So brothers and sisters, with this heavy message in mind, with the good news I hope you heard today in mind, I want to remind us as we wrap up of three things. The first is that our God is just. He is answering our prayers. He will not let injustice reign forever. He is in control. He is just, but he is also merciful. Our God has given chance after chance. It says God is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness, but he is patient. He wants all people to hear of him and to respond. The second thing, we the church will be persecuted. But our eternity is secure in Jesus Christ. and We have nothing to fear. As we read about these trumpets, we are told good news over and over again that God is in control and the future of the church is secure. When those two witnesses are raised, there's an earthquake and it tells us that the world is terrified. I don't think they're terrified because of the earthquake. They've seen a lot of stuff happen by the time the sixth trumpet comes. Like, if they weren't afraid of that, I don't know that the earthquake is going to terrify them. I think they're terrified because they just saw the church raised to life. And if death itself can't stop the church, they know nothing will. The church of Jesus Christ is eternally secure in his hand. And lastly, I want to leave all of us challenged with this. The time is short. We are not promised tomorrow. I will never get out a chart and say this is exactly when the trumpets will blast. And I encourage you to run from anyone who tells you that. But we do have signs that point us to the time being short, brothers and sisters. And so first I want to address those who don't know Jesus Christ. I don't pretend to think that every person in this room or every person listening online or every person you know has a personal relationship with Jesus. Let today be a sobering reminder to you that our God is merciful, but there will come a day when that mercy ends. Our God is inviting you now, in this very moment, to receive his everlasting love and grace and to rest not in fear but in peace, knowing that you are covered by the victorious blood of the Lamb and a God who loves you. And to the church of Jesus Christ, who has received that love, who is covered in the blood of the Lamb, and who is promised victory, my urgency to you today is to run. Don't walk. Don't meander to your neighbors, to the four corners of the earth, to your office, to your workplace, to your friend's house, to your family's house. Run with the good news of Jesus Christ. You are the witnesses that God has put in this world for a world that is facing judgment apart from him. Do not hold that to yourself. Take that message out faithfully as these two witnesses did with the promise of everlasting life, grace, and resurrection. And do not walk but run to give that message of hope to a world who desperately needs to hear it. We read this as good news today, and we should. But it's not good news for all. Only those who are sealed by the blood of the Lamb. So, as those who bear the name of the Lamb, go out and tell the world about him, about the firm foundation we have in Christ our cornerstone, as we the temple are being built up in him. 
Amen. Lord, there is so much here. And in the midst of trying to faithfully digest what you have told us, here the desire of our heart is just to respond in faithfulness. So my prayer over every person today, my prayer for Orchard Hill Church, is that we would respond to what we have heard today faithfully. If that means today is the day that we put our faith in you and receive everlasting security, may it be so, God. Let nothing hold back. And if today is the day that we finally hear and understand the urgency of our call to be the bearers of light and good news to the world, may we respond faithfully and let it be so. Let nothing hold us back and let us run with the good news to every corner of the world. And God, we just praise you. We praise you that we can hear this as good news because you are a good and merciful God. Thank you for the assurance that we are held in the palm of your hand, that we are a holy temple built on you, the cornerstone, and nothing can shake us. Father God, we worship you, and we know when that final trumpet sounds, we will rejoice because our God has come.